Welcome to the Bookshelf. I'm Doug Nadvornik. We're reading The Sun Also Rises, Ernest Hemingway's classic novel that put him on the world literature scene. It was published in 1926. It's about a group of American and British expatriates in 1920s Europe. They live in cosmopolitan Paris, but also travel to Spain. In this episode, our main character, American writer Jake Barnes, and his fellow American writer Bill Gorton, have just finished several days of fishing in the rural part of Spain. They're headed to Pamplona to meet up with some friends, but now they're in the city of Bergetta and meeting with an Englishman who has joined them for a couple of days of fishing. The Sun Also Rises is a book of its time. Hemingway uses a few words that are no longer socially acceptable. We've edited a few of them out that listeners might find offensive. Let's go back now to The Sun Also Rises on the bookshelf from Spokane Public Radio. Chapter 13. One morning I went down to breakfast, and the Englishman, Harris, was already at the table. He was reading the paper through spectacles. He looked up and smiled. Good morning, he said. Letter for you. I stopped at the post, and they gave it to me with mine. The letter was at my place at the table, leaning against a coffee cup. Harris was reading his paper again. I opened the letter. It had been forwarded from Pamplona. It was dated Sunday, San Sebastian. Dear Jake, we got here Friday. Brett passed out on the train, so brought her here for three days rest with old friends of ours. We go to Montoya Hotel Pamplona Tuesday, arriving at I don't know what hour. Will you send a note by the bus to tell us what to do to rejoin you all on Wednesday? All our love, and sorry to be late, but Brett really was done in and will be quite all right by Tuesday and is practically so now. I know her so well and try to look after her, but it's not so easy. Love to all the chaps. Michael. What day of the week is it, I asked Harris. Wednesday, I think. Yes, quite. Wednesday. Wonderful how one loses track of the days up here in the mountains. Yes, we've been here nearly a week, I said. I hope you're not thinking of leaving. Yes, we'll go in on the afternoon bus, I'm afraid. What a rotten business, he said. I had hoped we'd all have another go at the Arati together. We have to go into Pamplona. We're meeting people there, I said. What rotten luck for me. We've had a jolly time here at Brigetta. Come on into Pamplona, I said. We can play some bridge there, and there's going to be a damned fine fiesta. I'd like to, he said. Awfully nice of you to ask me. I'd best stay here, though. I've not much more time to fish. You want those big ones in the Arati? I say I do, you know. They're enormous trout there. I'd like to try them once more, too, I said. Do. Stop over another day. Be a good chap. Well, we really have to get into town, I said. After breakfast, Bill and I were sitting warming in the sun on a bench out in the front of the inn. We were talking it over. I saw a girl coming up the road from the center of town. She stopped in front of us and took a telegram out of the leather wallet that hung against her skirt. Para ustedes? I looked at it. The address was Barnes, Brigetta. Yes, it's for us, I said. She brought out a book for me to sign, and I gave her a couple of coppers. The telegram was in Spanish. Vengo jueves con. I handed it to Bill. What does the word con mean, he asked. What a lousy telegram, I said. He could send ten words for the same price. I come Thursday, he says. It gives you a lot of dope, doesn't it? It gives you all the dope that's of interest to Cone, he said. We're going in anyway, I said. There's no use trying to move Brett and Mike out here and back before the fiesta. Should we answer it? Eh, we might as well, said Bill. There's no need for us to be snooty. 
So we walked up to the post office and asked for a telegraph blank. What will we say, asked Bill. Arriving tonight, that's enough. We paid for the message and we walked back to the inn. Harris was there and the three of us walked up to Roncevallis. We went through the monastery. It's a remarkable place, Harris said when we came out. But you know, I'm not much on these sorts of places. Me either, said Bill. It is a remarkable place, though, Harris said. I wouldn't not have seen it. I'd been intending to come up each day. It isn't the same as fishing, though, is it? asked Bill. He liked Harris. I say not. We were standing in front of the old chapel of the monastery. Isn't that a pub across the way? Harris asked. Or do my eyes deceive me? It has the look of a pub, said Bill. It looks to me like a pub, I said. I say, let's utilize it, said Harris. He'd taken up utilizing from Bill. We had a bottle of wine apiece. Harris would not let us pay. He spoke Spanish quite well, and the innkeeper would not take our money. I say, you don't know what it's meant to me to have you chaps up here. We've had a grand time, Harris. He was a little tight. I say, really, you don't know how much it means. I've not had this much fun since the war. We'll fish together again sometime. Don't you forget it, Harris. Ah, we must. We have had such a jolly good time. How about another bottle around? Jolly good idea, said Harris. This one's mine, said Bill, or we don't drink it. I wish you'd let me pay for it. It does give me pleasure, you know. This is going to give me pleasure, said Bill. The innkeeper brought us the fourth bottle. We'd kept the same glasses, and Harris lifted his glass. I say, you know this does utilize well, and Bill slapped him on the back. Good old Harris. I say, you know my name isn't really Harris. It's Wilson Harris, all one name, with a hyphen, you know. Good old Wilson Harris, said Bill. We call you Harris because we're fond of you. I say, Barnes, you don't know what this all means to me. Come on and utilize another glass, I said. We walked back down the road from Roncevallis with Harris between us. We had lunch at the inn, and Harris went with us to the bus. He gave us his card with his address in London and his club and his business address, and as we got on the bus, he handed us each an envelope. I opened mine. There were a dozen flies in it. Harris had tied them himself. He tied all of his own flies. I say, Harris, I said. No, no, he said, climbing down from the bus. They're not first-rate flies at all. I only thought if you fished them sometime, it might remind you what a good time we had. The bus started. Harris stood in front of the post office and waved. As we started along the road, he turned and walked back toward the inn. Say, wasn't that Harris nice, said Bill. I think he really did have a good time, I said. Harris, you bet he did. I wish he'd come to Pamplona, I said. Nah, he wanted to fish. We got into Pamplona late in the afternoon, and the bus stopped in front of the Hotel Montoya. Out in the plaza, they were stringing electric light wires to light the plaza for the fiesta. A few kids came up when the bus stopped, and a customs officer for the town made all the people getting down from the bus open their bundles on the sidewalk. We went into the hotel, and on the stairs I met Montoya. He shook hands with us, smiling in his embarrassed way. "'Your friends are here,' he said. "'Mr. Campbell?' "'Yes, Mr. Cohn and Mr. Campbell and Lady Ashley.' and he smiled as though there was something I would hear about. When did they get in? Yesterday. I've saved you the rooms that you had. Oh, that's fine. Did you give Mr. Campbell the room on the plaza? Yes, all the rooms we looked at. Where are our friends now? I think they went to the Pelota. And how about the bulls? 
Montoya smiled. Tonight, tonight at seven o'clock, they bring in the VR bulls, and tomorrow come the Mioras. Do you all go down? Yes, they've never seen a bullfight. Montoya put his hand on my shoulder. I'll see you there. And he smiled again. He always smiled, as though bullfighting were a special secret between the two of us, a rather shocking but really very deep secret that we knew about. He always smiled as though there was something lewd about the secret to outsiders, but it was something that we understood. It would not do to expose it to people who would not understand. Your friend, is he aficionado too? Montoya smiled at Bill. Yes, he came all the way from New York to see the San Fermines. Yes, Montoya politely disbelieved, but he's not aficionado like you. He put his hand on my shoulder again, embarrassedly. Yes, I said he is a real aficionado, but he's not aficionado like you are. Let's take a minute to remind new listeners that you're listening to The Bookshelf. We're reading The Sun Also Rises, Ernest Hemingway's first major novel from 1926. Aficion means passion, and aficionado is one who is passionate about the bullfights. All the good bullfighters stayed at Montoya's hotel, that is, those with aficion stayed there. The commercial bullfighters stayed there once, perhaps, and didn't come back. The good ones came each year. In Montoya's room were their photographs. The photographs were dedicated to Juanito Montoya or to his sister. The photographs of bullfighters Montoya had really believed in were framed. Photographs of bullfighters who had been without aficion Montoya kept in a drawer on his desk. They often had the most flattering inscriptions, but they didn't mean anything. One day Montoya took them all out and dropped them in the wastebasket. He didn't want them around. We often talked about bulls and bullfighters. I'd stopped at the Montoya for several years. We never talked for very long at a time. It was simply the pleasure of discovering what we each felt. Men would come in from distant towns, and before they left Pamplona, they'd stop and talk for a few minutes with Montoya about bulls. These men were aficionados. Those who were aficionados could always get rooms, even when the hotel was full. Montoya introduced me to some of them. They were always very polite at first, and it amused them very much that I should be an American. Somehow it was taken for granted that an American could not have aficion. He might simulate it or confuse it with excitement, but he couldn't really have it. When they saw that I did have aficion, there was no password, no set questions that could bring it out. Rather, it was a sort of oral spiritual examination, with the questions always a little on the defensive and never apparent. There was the same embarrassed putting the hand on the shoulder or buen hombre, but nearly always there was the actual touching. It seemed as though they wanted to touch you to make it certain. Montoya could forgive anything of a bullfighter who had aficion. He could forgive attacks of nerves, panic, bad, unexplainable actions, all sorts of lapses. For one who had aficion, he could forgive anything. At once, he forgave me all my friends. Without his ever saying anything, they were simply a little something shameful between us, like the spilling open of the horses in bullfighting. Bill had gone upstairs as we came in, and I found him washing and changing in his room. Well, he said, speak a lot of Spanish? He was telling me about the bulls that are coming in tonight. Well, let's find the gang and go down, he said. Okay, 
They'll probably be at the cafe. Have you got tickets, he asked. Yes, I've got them for all the unloadings. What's it like? He was pulling his cheek before the glass, looking to see if there were any unshaved patches under the line of the jaw. It's pretty good, I said. They let the bulls out of the cages one at a time, and they have steers in the corral to receive them and keep them from fighting. And the bulls tear in at the steers, and the steers run around like old maids trying to quiet them down. Do they ever gore the steers? Sure. Sometimes they go right after them and kill them. Can't the steers do anything? No, they're trying to make friends. What do they have them in for? To quiet down the bulls and keep them from breaking their horns against the stone walls or from goring each other. Must be swell being a steer, he said. We went down the stairs and out of the door, and we walked across the square toward the Café Arunia. There were two lonely-looking ticket houses standing in the square. Their windows marked Sol, Soli Sombra, and Sombra were shut. They would not open until the day before the fiesta. Across the square, the white wicker tables and chairs of the Arunia extended out beyond the arcade to the edge of the street. I looked for Brett and Mike at the tables, and there they were. Brett and Mike and Robert Cohn. Brett was wearing a Basque beret, and so was Mike. Robert Cohn was bareheaded and wearing his spectacles. Brett saw us coming and waved. Her eyes crinkled up as we came up to the table. Hello, you chaps, she called. She was happy. Mike had a way of getting an intensity of feeling into shaking hands. Robert Cohn shook hands because we were back. Where the hell you been, I asked. I brought them up here, said Cohn. What rot, Brett said. We'd have gotten here earlier if you hadn't come. You'd never have gotten here. What rot? You chaps are brown. Look at Bill. Did you get good fishing, Mike asked. We wanted to join you. Wasn't bad. We missed you. I wanted to come, said Cone, but I thought I ought to bring them. You bring us. What rot, she said. Was it really good, Mike asked. Did you take many? Some days we took a dozen apiece. There was an Englishman up there. Named Harris, Bill said. Ever know him, Mike? He was in the war, too. Fortunate fellow, Mike said. What times we had. How I wish those dear days were back. Don't be an ass. Were you in the war, Mike? Cone asked. He was a very distinguished soldier, Brett said. Tell them about the time your horse bolted down Piccadilly. I'll not. I've told that four times. You never told me, Robert Cone said. I'll not tell that story. It reflects discredit on me. Tell them about your medals, she said. I'll not. That story reflects great discredit on me. What story is that? Ah, oh, Brett will tell you. She tells all the stories that reflect discredit on me. Go on, tell it, Brett. Should I? I'll tell it myself, Mike said. What medals have you got, Mike? I haven't got any medals. You must have some. I suppose I've got the usual medals, but I never sent in for them. One time there was this whopping big dinner, and the Prince of Wales was to be there, and the cards said medals will be worn, so naturally I had no medals, and I stopped at my tailor's, and he was impressed by the invitation, and I thought that's a good piece of business, and I said to him, you've got to fix me up with some medals. He said, what medals, sir? And I said, oh, any medals, just give me a few medals. And he said, what medals have you, sir? And I said, how should I know? Did he think I spent all my time reading the bloody gazette? Just give me a good lot. Pick some out yourself. And so he got me some medals, you know, miniature medals. He handed me the box, and I put it in my pocket, and I forgot it. Well, I went to the dinner, and it was the night they'd shot Henry Wilson, 
So the prince didn't come, and the king didn't come, and no one wore any medals, and all these coves were busy taking off their medals, and I had mine in my pocket. He stopped for us to laugh. Is that all? That's all. Maybe I didn't tell it right. You didn't, said Brett, but no matter. Ah, we were all laughing anyway. Ah, yes, said Mike, I know now. It was a damn dull dinner, and I couldn't stick it, so I left. Later on in the evening, I found the box in my pocket. What's this, I said? Medals? Bloody military medals? So I cut them all off their backing. You know, they put them on a strip, and I gave them all around. I gave one to each girl. Form a souvenir. Give away medals in a nightclub. Dashing fellow. Tell the rest, said Brett. Didn't you think that was funny, Mike asked. We were all laughing. It was, I swear it was. any rate, my tailor wrote me and wanted the medals back. He sent a man around, kept on writing for months. Seems some chap had left them to be cleaned. Frightfully military cove, set hell's own store by them. And he paused. Rotten luck for the tailor, he said. You don't mean it, said Bill. I should think it would have been grand for the tailor. Frightfully good tailor. Never believe it to see me now, Mike said. I used to pay him a hundred pounds a year just to keep him quiet so he wouldn't send me any bills. Frightful blow to him when I went bankrupt. It was right after the medals. Gave his letters rather a bitter tone. How'd you go bankrupt, Bill asked. Two ways, Mike said. Gradually and then suddenly. What brought it on? Friends, said Mike. I had a lot of friends. False friends. And then I had creditors, too. Probably had more creditors than anybody in England. Tell them about in the court, Brett said. Extraordinary thing, said Mike. Met my former partner the other day. Offered to buy me a drink. Tell them about your learned counsel, Brett said. I will not, Mike said. My learned counsel was blind, too. I say, this is a gloomy subject. Are we going down to see these bulls unloaded or not? Let's go down. So we called the waiter, and we paid our bill and started to walk through the town. I started off with Brett, but Robert Cohn came up and joined her on the other side. The three of us walked along, past the Ayuntamiento, with the banners hung from the balcony, down past the market, and down past the steep street that led to the bridge across the Arga. There were many people walking to go and see the bulls. Carriages drove down the hill and across the bridge, the drivers and the horses and the whips rising above the walking people in the street. Across the bridge we turned up a road to the corrals, and we passed a wine shop with a sign in the window, Good wine, thirty centimos a liter. That's where we'll go when funds get low, said Brett. The woman standing in the door of the wine shop looked at us as we passed. She called to someone in the house, and three girls came to the window and stared. They were staring at Brett. At the gate of the corrals, two men took tickets from the people that went in. We went in through the gate. There were trees inside and a low stone house. At the far end was the stone wall of the corrals, with apertures in the stone that were like loopholes running all along the face of each corral. A ladder led up to the top of the wall, and people were climbing up the ladder and spreading down to stand on the walls that separated the two corrals. As we came up to the ladder, walking across the grass under the trees, we passed the big gray painted cages with the bulls in them. There was one bull in each traveling box. They'd come by train from a bull-breeding ranch in Castile. They'd been unloaded off flat cars at the station, and they were brought up here to be let out of their cages into the corrals. Each cage was stenciled with the name and the brand of the bull breeder. 
We climbed up and found a place on the wall, looking down into the corral. The stone walls were whitewashed. There was straw on the ground and wooden feed boxes and water troughs set against the wall. Look up there, I said. Beyond the river rose the plateau of the town. All along the old walls and ramparts, people were standing. The three lines of fortifications made three black lines of people. Above the walls, there were heads in the windows of the houses. At the far end of the plateau, boys had climbed into the trees. They must think something's going to happen, said Brett. They want to see the bulls. Mike and Bill were on the other wall across the pit of the corral, and they waved to us. People who had come late were standing behind us and pressing against us when other people crowded them. Why don't they start, asked Robert Cohn. There was a single mule hitched to one of the cages and dragged it up against the gate in the corral wall. The men shoved and lifted it with crowbars into position against the gate. Men were standing on the wall, ready to pull up the gate of the corral and then the gate of the cage. At the other end of the corral, a gate opened and two steers came in. They were swaying their heads and trotting. Their lean flanks were swinging. They stood together at the far end. Their heads toward the gate were the bull went at her. They don't look too happy, said Brett. The men on top of the wall leaned back and pulled up the door of the corral. Then they pulled up the door of the cage. I leaned way over the wall and I tried to see into the cage, but it was dark. Someone rapped on the cage with an iron bar. Inside, something seemed to explode. The bull, striking into the wood from side to side with his horns, made a great noise. And then I saw a dark muzzle and the shadow of horns. And then, with a clattering on the wood in the hollow box, the bull charged and came out into the corral. He was skidding with his forefeet into the straw as he stopped. His head was up. The great hump of muscle on his neck was swollen tight. His body muscles were quivering as he looked up at the crowd on the stone walls. The two steers backed away against the wall. Their heads were sunken, their eyes watching the bull. The bull saw them and charged. A man shouted from behind one of the boxes and slapped his hat against the planks, and the bull, before he reached the steer, turned, gathered himself, and charged where the man had been. He was trying to reach him behind the planks with a half-dozen quick, searching drives with his right horn. "'My God, isn't he beautiful?' said Brett. We were looking right down on him. "'Look at how he knows how to use his horns,' I said. "'He's got a left and a right, just like a boxer.' "'Not really. You watch.' "'It goes too fast,' she said. "'Wait, there'll be another one in a minute.' They backed up another cage into the entrance. In the far corner, a man from behind one of the plank shelters attracted the bull. And while the bull was facing away, the gate was pulled up and a second bull came out into the corral. He charged straight for the steers and two men ran out from behind the planks and shouted to turn him. He didn't change his direction and the two men shouted, Ha! Ha! Toro! and waved their arms. The two steers turned sideways to take the shock, and the bull drove into one of the steers. Don't look, I said to Brett. She was watching, fascinated. Fine, I said, if it doesn't buck you. I saw it, she said. I saw him shift from his left to his right horn. Damn good. The steer was down now, his neck stretched out, his head twisted. He lay the way he had fallen, and suddenly the bull left off and made for the other steer, which had been standing at the far end, his head swinging, watching it all. 
That steer ran awkwardly, and the bull caught him, hooked him lightly in the flank, and then turned away and looked up at the crowd on the walls, the crest of muscle rising. The steer came up to him and made as though to nose at him, and the bull hooked perfunctorily. The next time he nosed at the steer, and then the two of them trotted over to the other bull. When the next bull came out, all three, the two bulls and the steer, stood together, their heads side by side, their horns against the newcomer. In a few minutes, the steer picked the new bull up, quieted him down, and made him one of the herd. When the last two bulls had been unloaded, the herd were all together. The steer who had been gored had gotten to his feet and stood against the stone wall. None of the bulls came near him, and he did not attempt to join the herd. We climbed down from the wall with the crowd and had a last look at the bulls through the loopholes in the wall of the corral. All of them were quiet now, their heads down. We got a carriage outside and rode up to the cafe. Mike and Bill came in half an hour later. They'd stopped on the way for several drinks. We were sitting in the cafe. Whoa, that's an extraordinary business, said Brett. Will those last ones fight as well as the first, Robert Cohn asked. They seemed to quiet down awfully fast. They all know each other, I said. They're only dangerous when they're alone, or only two or three of them together. What do you mean dangerous, Bill asked. They all look dangerous to me. They only want to kill when they're alone. Of course, if you went in there, you'd probably detach one of them from the herd, and he'd be dangerous. That's too complicated, said Bill. Don't you ever detach me from the herd, Mike. I say, Mike said, they were fine bulls, weren't they? Did you see their horns? Did I not, said Brett. I had no idea what they were like. Did you see the ones that hit that steer, Mike asked? That was extraordinary. Is no life being a steer, said Robert Cohn. Don't you think so, Mike said. I would have thought you'd love being a steer, Robert. What do you mean, Mike? They lead such a quiet life. They never say anything, and they're always hanging about so. We were embarrassed. Bill laughed, and Robert Cohn was angry. Mike went on talking. I should think you'd love it, Robert. You'd never have to say a word. Come on, do say something. Don't just sit there. I said something, Mike. Don't you remember? About the steers. Say something more. Say something funny. Can't you see we're all having a good time here? Come off it, Michael. You're drunk, said Brett. I'm not drunk. I'm quite serious. Is Robert Cohn going to follow Brett around like a steer all the time? Shut up, Michael. Try and show a little breeding, she said. Breeding be damned. Who has breeding anyway except the bulls? Aren't the bulls lovely? Don't you like them, Bill? Why don't you say something, Robert? Don't sit there looking like a bloody funeral. What if Brett did sleep with you? She slept with lots of better people than you. Shut up, Cone said. He stood up. Shut up, Mike. So with that, right in the middle of a drunken tirade by Lady Brett Ashley's fiancé Mike, we have to end it. You'll want to make sure and return next time to see how it all turns out. We're reading from Ernest Hemingway's The Sun Also Rises on the Bookshelf, produced by Vern Windham for Spokane Public Radio. I'm Doug Nadvornik, looking forward to next time. Thank you for listening. <laughs>